right. Preschoolers, we will see you guys later. Everyone else, I'd invite you to open up to Romans chapter 2. Uh, we are again in, in Romans chapter 2, and Paul is in the middle of trying to teach us that because of our sin, we all are rightly under the righteous judgment and wrath of God. And I'm glad Pastor Kevin addressed the, the heating issues uh, so that you would not think we were purposefully cranking the heat on you as we talk about God's wrath and God's judgment, all right? That was not meant to be timed that way. But as we continue to go through Romans 2, there's a bit of, of a heaviness to this, and, and that's okay. We are, we are getting through it. We're, we're not going to be in Romans 2 forever. But this is, let me remind you, this is why the gospel is necessary. This is why it needs to be proclaimed and believed. For it is the gospel that is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And Paul has, has shown us that all of us, because of sin, right, we're under this righteous judgment. We're under the holy wrath of God. And there are some people who will identify more with the Romans 1 type of person, right? Who has just outrightly uh, rejected the way the Creator has designed and defined things. But Romans 1 people aren't the only people that are under God's judgment and wrath. No, in Romans 2, like we started to see last week, he's, Paul has now directed his attention to those who grew up in a religious household, Right, who grew up in a Jewish household, who grew up uh, in, a, in a Gentile or Greek household that was very ethical or moral. And we describe these people as the, the moralist or the religious person, the Romans 2 person. And we saw that they had really committed the same sin as Romans 1 had. They just had done it in a much more respectable and religious way. Romans 1 people saw no need for the Creator. Romans 2 people have seen no need for a Christ, no need for a Savior. They despised the kindness of God. They saw it as a really small and insignificant thing. They thought the kindness of God was the same as the approval of God, not knowing that His kindness was meant to lead them to repentance, to have a change of affection and direction in their life. And many of us, including myself, I think we walked out of here last week maybe seeing ourselves all too much in Romans chapter 2 and leaving with this sense of just what do we do in light of this? What does a moralist do? What does a recovering moralist do? And I believe God shows us in these next few verses how our working for glory can be rescued from ourselves. You see, the moralist is striving and working for glory, and that by itself is not a bad thing. The question is, are you working for the glory that comes from man, or are you working for the glory that comes from God? The moralist is enslaved to working for the glory that comes from man. And we'll be warned this morning that, that our works will be judged. And, and, and even more so than that, 
The one who will judge our works also knows our hearts. But we'll see today that God is so good because he's going to show us how he frees us from working for the glory that comes from man and empowers us to work for the glory that comes from God. Right, this will be good news today. So let's pray and we'll, we'll jump in. Father God, oh Lord, you have been so kind to us. You have been so good to us, so patient with us. And Lord, I ask for those who fell under conviction of last week, God, that you would comfort them with your word this morning. Lord, we ask that your truth would, would rise to the surface here in this sermon, God, that you would be exalted, that you would be glorified, and that, Lord, you would free us from working for the praise and the glory of fellow mankind and that we would ultimately find, Lord, our rest in you. So free us, Lord. Free us today. Comfort us today. Strengthen us with your word. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Romans 2. We're going to be picking up in verse 5 this morning. Remember, we've just come out of that glorious verse 4, God's kindness meant to lead us to repentance. But now in verse 5, he says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Remember, we've talked about how God's wrath, there's a present and a future reality to it. It's right now being poured out as he's giving us over to, to what we want in our sin. But, but there is a day of wrath coming. There is a future day of wrath coming that is being stored up for those who persist to, to love unrighteousness and to, to, to not acknowledge their need for a creator and a savior. And we see here that, that the underlying problem of the moralist, it's, it's ultimately a problem of, the, of their heart. Like, yes, they were maybe born into the right families. They had maybe gone to the right religious gatherings. They'd maybe gotten the right schooling and learned all the law of God. But, but there was something seriously still wrong with their heart that needed to be addressed. Paul says that their hearts are hard and impenitent. Right? To have a hard heart means that their hearts are stubborn. There's a callousness to them. And because of this hardness of heart, it's not, their, their heart's not functioning as it should. It's unable to do what it was created to do. This hard, stubborn heart is, is unable to work for the glory of God and the glory that is from God. Their hearts are hard. Their hearts are also impenitent, or essentially meaning unrepentant, right? They've been unable to have a change of affection or direction. And these two words, hard and impenitent, when used together in the Bible, they're almost always used to describe people who are guilty of idolatry. Which is just another reminder, these Romans 2 people have been just like the Romans 1 people, right? They've worshipped and served other things other than God. They've, they've committed idolatry. And he says, you moralistic people are storing up wrath for yourselves as well because your heart is just as hard and unrepentant as your neighbor. You just appear to be a bit nicer and more respectable about it. 
And here we see that, that he who knows your hearts is going to be the one who judges your works. Verse 6, it says, He will render to each one according to his works. This is a quote from Psalm 62, which we will go to in a moment. But verse 6 and verse 11 are getting at this same truth about God. Verse 11 says, For God shows no partiality. Right? God is impartial, meaning he doesn't judge by appearances. He doesn't show special treatment on a superficial level or just because you're in the right family or right group of people. Right? Just because you grew up in the right household doesn't mean that you are good and everything's good and right with you and God. God knows the heart, and he will render to each one according to his works. He knows why you do what you do. You might be able to fool other people. We might not all know why you do what you do, but the one who judges your works knows your heart. He knows why you are doing what you are doing. Now, it's important to, to pause here for a moment and remind ourselves the current context and the part of Romans that we find ourselves in, because Paul is teaching us primarily here how we are judged by God. That's, that's kind of what he's trying to teach us, all right? He, he's teaching us that we are judged by our works, and oftentimes works that overflow out of our hearts. But he's, he's not necessarily trying to teach us how we are saved, okay? That's not his main point here. It wouldn't necessarily be all that accurate to, to go to this text and try to look at how we are saved, He's going to move later on into how we are saved, how we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. But here he's trying to show us how we are judged. And really, this is important even for the believer. Even after you've been saved, even after you've come to Christ, uh, we know that believers will, will still be judged by God in the end, but it's not going to be uh, in regards to whether they're saved or not. It's going to be more of a concern with rewards that we will receive for how we live for, for Christ and his kingdom. So there is, a, there is a judgment coming even for believers. There's no condemnation or wrath coming for those that are in Christ, but there is still a judgment coming. But Paul's not teaching here that we are saved by our works. He's teaching us that we are judged by our works. And therefore, we need to be saved. <laughs> right? He's getting at this idea of teaching us how we are judged. But I probably need to even clarify a little bit more here. Because even though we are not saved by our works, we are saved by works. And you probably won't hear me say that much because of the confusion it can create. But listen, we are not saved by our works, but we are saved by works because ultimately we are saved by the works of Jesus Christ. Right? We're not saved because of our obedience, but we are saved because of his obedience. R.C. Sproul, pastor, theologian, who's now with the Lord, he once wrote, The only way anyone can ever be saved is by works. God requires that his law be fulfilled, and unless you possess perfect righteousness, you will never be justified. Now the issue is this, by whose works will you be justified? Justification by faith alone means that we are justified by the works 
of Christ alone. This is why Paul will teach us in a few chapters in Romans 5, verse 19. He'll say, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. The obedience of Jesus Christ. But you see, the moralist, the person with a hard and unrepentant heart, they they don't want to surrender to the good works of Christ. They don't want to rest in the obedience of Christ. They don't want to rejoice in the obedience and the righteousness of Christ. No, they want some credit. They want to be praised for their works. They get more excited uh, to talk about what they have done for God more than when they talk about what God has done for them. You, you've, you've felt this. You've experienced this, right? Like, what, what really brings life to you? Is it, is it talking about what you have done for God, or is it talking about what God has done for you? The moralists, they, they despise when the work of Christ is exalted too much. They're quick to say, what about my work? What about my obedience? Doesn't that matter? Can't I be praised because of that? And here, Paul compares these two types of people in verses 7 and 8. We're going to see two different people in verses 7 and 8. Verse 7 is the one who is working for the glory that comes from God. And we're going we're gonna to finish talking about them, all right? We're going to start with the bad news, all right? Verse 8 describes the one working for the glory that comes from man. So look at, look at verse 7. We'll read 7 and 8, and then we'll... We'll talk about eight first. Verse seven says, To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. This word for self-seeking is describing someone who is selfishly ambitious. Some translations have contentious because they are people who are contending for themselves. Right? These people are ambitious for the honor and the praise that comes from their fellow man. They contend and they argue and they're hostile and they cause divisions all because they have a desire to elevate themselves. Right? These are people who care more about winning arguments than loving people. They care more about looking like they know a lot about God than actually knowing God. They're people who we saw at the start of Romans chapter 2 who easily pick apart the sin of everyone else around them, but they're blind to their own sin. Now, they're ambitious, and they're driven, and that's not always a bad thing, and, and it's, it's wrapped in this religious and respectable packaging, but, but God knows what's going on on the inside, right? They are selfishly ambitious on the inside. They are seeking and contending for self in their hearts. Life is still all about them. They wake up thinking, how is today going to benefit me? How is this next religious activity going to benefit me? How will what I share advance my reputation and how people perceive me? 
How will my work today benefit me or my bank account or my family or my reputation or my job or my comfort? And this is a person who then pursues things that they know will bring them acceptance and approval and praise from others. And they are selfishly ambitious as they are actually contending with Christ for who gets to sit on the throne and who gets the praise and glory from man. Contentious. And it's ultimately a very earthly and even a very demonic and evil thing to be selfishly ambitious. We find this same word in James, James chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. He writes, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, there's that word, in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Some of your bitter jealousy and selfish ambition has led to all sorts of sin in your life. But the root is here. The heart issue is here. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. The moralist, the religious person, their, their selfish ambition, it doesn't always look bad on the outside, right? It's a lot of times them doing the right things, but for the wrong reasons. Sometimes it even looks like going to church to pray. Jesus told a parable about this in Luke 18. And I love how this parable starts in verse 9. It says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. I mean, do you see the parallel between the Romans 2 person and who Jesus is speaking this parable to? He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, this 
Pharisee sees himself to be very different from the tax collector, doesn't he? And yet it it doesn't at all matter what men say about him. It does not at all matter what other people say about you. It doesn't matter what you say about you. It matters what God says about you. That's what matters. Like everyone who thinks they can seek their their own glory and they can seek it in their own strength and rightness, they will be quickly humbled by God. Because there has to be something done on the heart of a selfishly ambitious person of which we have all been and we all still at times struggle to be. Right? There has to be something done on the heart. This is why Paul, at the end of chapter 2, is going to, to, again, show us that something has to be done on the heart. He says in 2.29, he says, But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Right? You see him kind of summarize what this moralist is after. They're after the praise from man. They're after the glory that comes from man, not from the glory that comes from God. And something has to be done on the heart of a human that will free us from working for the praise from man and empower us to work for the praise and glory that comes from God. Something has to be done on the heart of a human to transform selfish ambition to godly ambition. Something has to happen to pursue not your own glory from fellow man, but a glory that comes from the Lord. And this is what we start to see in in verse 6, right? And if you look back at Romans 2 verse 6, it says, He will render to each one according to his works. Now at first glance, you might not yet be tracking with me, but this is a quote from Psalm 62. And so I would invite you to turn back in your Bibles to Psalm 62. We're going to be in this psalm for a little bit. Paul is quoting Psalm 62. And so we're going to slowly read through Psalm 62 right now. Because Psalm 62 is where you need to go if you can identify with the moralist in Romans chapter 2. Or if you're a recovering moralist, like I said I was last week, right? What my soul needed this week was Psalm 62. And so it's no surprise that after the conviction of the first five verses of Romans chapter 2 that Paul quotes from Psalm 62. All right, Psalm 62 is a psalm of David, David, and in it we see two types of people, just like we see in these verses in Romans, two types of people. And what I want you to notice, um, in these two types of people, we see one type of person uh, described in Psalm 62, and this is a person who is plotting against and contending with God's chosen king. All right, that's... That's one, the, the contending one. One who's plotting against and contending with God's king. And we're going to compare that then with David, who is resting in God. All right? Two types of people we'll see as we go through Psalm 62. Psalm 62, verse 1 says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. 
He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. I mean, think about this for a moment. It's a, it's a psalm that's, that's getting at, you know, David's under a, a kind of a stressful situation. And think about when you're under stress or pressure or when you're anxious. I mean, I don't know about you, but my mind and my soul and my heart, they are not silent. I mean, they're, they're, they're noisier than ever, right? My soul is really noisy when I'm not resting in and waiting upon God. My mind is playing out all the scenarios. What about this? What about that? What if they do this? What if they do that? And when you're working for the glory and the praise of, of men and women, that's, that's where your mind goes. It's noisy. But David does not care here about what people are saying or plotting about him. He cares what God says about him. And the natural instinct in a stressful situation is to start contending for yourself, right? To start working for yourself. I mean, you feel like everyone else is against you. You've got to start working for yourself. You've got to start defending yourself and fighting for yourself, for your rights and your reputation. And, 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 and what you are doing when you are doing that is that you are not trusting in and resting in God. You're not trusting that God is going to be enough in that situation. But no, David says, hey, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. Right? Be still, my soul. Wait for God. Why? Because from him comes my salvation. The moralist and the religious person and the Romans too person, they know this, but they need to really believe this. From him comes my salvation. What place does pride or boasting or self-righteousness have if salvation comes from him? Verse 3, How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence, they only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Salem. There are those who plot against God's chosen king. And the moralist does this as well. They despise the heights of God's kindness and goodness and they seek to elevate themselves. They judge and tear down brothers and sisters in order to raise themselves up. They bless God and others outwardly, knowing the right words to say, but inside they curse. You see this here in the psalm, right? Outwardly, they're saying all these things, but inwardly, they curse, they resent, they envy others. There's a bitter jealousy. There's a selfish ambition in their heart. And God says in verse 3, How long will you do this? How long? I've been kind to you. I've been patient with you. I've been forbearing with you. How long? I who judge your works, I know your heart. And so may this not be us, church. May this not be us. May, be, may we be ones that come back to verse 5 and can say in Psalm 62, verse 5, For God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from Him. 
He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. Oh, what joy there is to be able to rest your salvation and glory on God. These are things that your shoulders are not strong enough to bear. You cannot hold them up. But his yoke is easy, and his burden is light. And oh, what peace there is when we stop working for our glory, and we stop working for the glory and praise of others, and instead rest all of our glory and all of our salvation upon God. Look what he goes on to say. He says, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Verse 8, trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Man, if, if Romans 2 was convicting for you like it has been for me, like here it is. Go to this verse and hear what God is calling you to do. To trust in him at all times. To pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Church, trust him. Go to him. Pour out your heart before him. Rest in him. He knows what to do with all the messiness and complexities of our hearts. <laughs> pour out your heart before him. He can handle it. And he knows what to do with it. And we are called to go and pour out our heart before him and trust that he'll know what to do. Verse 9. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. And to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. Right? And that's where Paul quotes from in Romans 2, verse 6. A reminder that this is not a new, a tru this is not a new truth. This is not a new command. We will be judged by our works. Those who are contending against the rightful king are not going to be able to stand against his power. But those who rest their salvation and glory on God alone will not be shaken. Those who rest their salvation and their glory on God alone will not be shaken. And it is in this waiting and resting in the Lord that the Lord does a transformation, a transformational work on how we pursue glory. All right, we, we are to pursue glory, right? We are glory seekers. We love glorious and wonderful things, right? We love to, to stand right at the, uh, the Grand Canyon or at a mountain range or at the ocean. Like, we love glorious things. We love to watch uh, Olympians and people who are at the top of their, their field. But, but God has to do a transformational work in our hearts or, or else our seeking for glory, our working for glory will quickly turn into selfish ambition if God doesn't do a transformational work on our heart. And he does that transformational work in our waiting and in our resting in the Lord. 
You see, a lot of times when we forget to wait and rest in the Lord, our working and our pursuit of glory, it gets so selfish. And honestly, selfish, when you're working with a selfish ambition, it's also just so wearisome. You know, it, it just, it drains you. Things start to be feel like you have to do them instead of you get to do them, right? Like, if I can be honest, there are some weeks, even a, even a week like, like this week where there were a couple of days I, um, I wasn't feeling as well. I'm feeling, feeling better today. But there were a couple of days this week I wasn't feeling as well. It, it kind of shortened my time to prep. It shortened time to do things that I would normally want to do. And in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, what if I, I won't be able to get the, the best illustrations, won't be able to get the best applications, excuse me, won't be able to get the best hand movements, right? <laughs> and all of a sudden, when I'm starting to, like, think about the praise from man and the glory that comes from man, all of a sudden, preaching starts to feel like something I have to do. And it's tiring, it's exhausting to do work that you have to do. But when you stop and when you rest in the Lord, that gives you an opportunity to remind yourself and the Lord reminds you all the work that He has already done for you. That He has called you, that He has saved you, He has justified for you, He's died for you, He was risen for you, He's adopted you into the family, He's given you the Holy Spirit. He's freed you from your sin. He's empowered you to now follow Him. And when we stop and we rest and we wait on the Lord, He does a transformational work on our heart to now it's not that we have to, it's not that we, we now have to go work, it's that now we get, we get to go work. And there's a, there's a joyful response to, to go joyfully work for the Lord, to bring Him glory and to one day receive the glory that will come from Him. Right? I, I don't want to have to live my life feeling like I have to preach. When I stop and I wait and I rest in the Lord, I'm reminded, man, I get to preach. The rocks are going to cry out if I don't. God doesn't need me to preach. I get to, be, I get to preach. I get to be a part of this, right? I mean, this is important for, for those of you that are married, right? If you stop and you wait and you remember I mean, just think about this. So husbands, you know, the command, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Like that's, I can read that and, and I can feel like that is such a high bar. <laughs> There's no way I can meet that. You mean I have to do that? Like, oh my goodness, that's such, that's impossible, right? But what if we actually stopped and we waited and we rested in the Lord first and he reminded us, Whoa, just think about how Christ has loved us. He sacrificially laid his life down for us. He redeemed us. He has united himself to us. And after you've waited and rested with the Lord, now all of a sudden it's, man, he, he, he's now given me this opportunity to go by the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God, go love my wife as he loves the church. 
It's not that we have to, it's that we get to. I mean, this, this, this changes the, the whole mentality that we are not saved by our good works, but we are saved for good works. And it's only when we stop and we rest and we remember the work of Christ and all that God has done for us that that now frees us to joyfully go work for his glory and his glory alone. And that's, that's life-giving energy. That's, that's joy-giving energy to, to think about not all the work that we have to do, but to think about the work that we have now been saved and, and get to do. And this is why almost everything we do as a Christian must first start with resting in and remembering what God has already done. Like anything you do as a Christian, this, I mean, not to, not to simplify it too much and give you like steps, but step one probably always need, needs to be this, to stop and rest in and remember what God has already done. As Christians, we should not just start doing, 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 because we know that if we did do that, we would quickly be starting to do things for our own glory. We would quickly fall into selfish ambition. But no, a Christian should first start by resting in and remembering what God has done. That he has freed us from our selfish ambition. And he now empowers us to go joyfully work with a godly ambition. It's only after we've rested in and rejoiced in what God has done that we can then go joyfully and restfully work for the glory that is from God. And I mean, think about the principle even of, of the Sabbath that we see in Scripture. God, when he created the world, worked for six days and then rested on the seventh. And he instructed his people under the old covenant to recognize this as well. But it's, it's a little different for us now on this side of the cross and the resurrection, isn't it? Because in the Old Testament, rest was always ahead of the people. It was always at the end of their week. They worked six days, and then they got a day of rest. And just like so many other things in the Old Covenant, they were looking ahead. They were looking forward to something to come. But the life, death, resurrection of Christ ushered in a new age. It inaugurated a new covenant. And therefore, the early Christians started worshiping on the first day of the week, not the last. No longer do we labor for six days and then we get a rest. No, we start the week with a rest. I don't know if you guys realize this. This is the start of the week. And we're not working. Now, does that make us lazy? No, it makes us Christians. Right? We, we, we start the week with a rest. Not, we, we, we don't start the week like getting right after our work. We start the week celebrating the work that Christ has already done. And we know we have to start this way or else we will get selfishly ambitious very quickly. And it's because we can rest in the work of Christ at the start of the week that we can now then joyfully enter into the work God has called us for the remaining six days. I mean, let's be honest. Listen, if we didn't gather here for worship, we could do a lot more, couldn't we? I mean, we could do a lot more work. We could do a lot more blessing the city and the world. We could do a lot more if we didn't take this time to just stop and rest and remember what Christ had already done. We could go serve much more if we didn't have this time. 
And the wisdom of the world would tell you, hey, if you want to be ambitious, you, you need to go ahead and get some other things going and working on while other people are resting. But there's something very holy about not doing all that you can do. And isn't this what God demonstrated to us in the creation of the world? He could have created something else on day seven. And I'm sure it would have been amazing. But he didn't. And everything we do as Christians, we need to first stop and rest in what God has already done. And that will allow us then to restfully pursue the glory for, for God and the glory from God. We see this same thing in the principle of tithing, right? God's people were to give of their first fruits to the Lord. Not that what they had left over, right? They gave to God first, and by doing so, they were resting in and trusting that God would provide what they needed the rest of the month. Giving of your first fruits, that's a way of resting and trusting in what God has done, and that, that, that totally transforms how you handle all your resources. Or what about this? Just the simple act of pausing before a meal. I know a lot of us do this just out of habit. But what a great way to stop and rest and trust in God before you consume this food. To remind yourself that, that ultimately everything we have has been given to us from God and that we do not live by bread alone. This transforms even how we eat, right? And being able to eat for the glory of God like we're called to do. This is another reason why it's, it's so wise and good to start your day in the Word and in prayer. I know when we first wake up, we have a long list of things that we need to get to working on. But before we do anything, we need our work to be transformed by God through resting in what he has already done so that then you can go and restfully work for the glory of God. It's in our trusting and our resting in the Lord that we are then empowered to go rightly work for glory. Look back at Romans 2, uh, verse 7. We'll flip back now to Romans 2 as we wrap things up here. Romans 2, verse 7. This is now describing... The, the, the person that is, um, that is going to be given eternal life, right? He says, To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. You see, it's not that the believer does not work for glory, but we don't work for the glory and praise from people. We work for the glory and praise that will be from God. In 2 Corinthians 4.17, we'll have a couple of verses up here. Paul says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Colossians 3, verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You see, we, we, yes, we do work and do all things to the glory of God, that he might be praised and honored. But we're also working for a glory we're going to receive from him. 
A true believer doesn't need to seek for the glory from fellow man because we've got a greater glory that we're going after. We seek a glory that is from God. We seek the honor that will come from God when he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Now enter my rest. Right? We, we work not to be immortalized by fellow humans, but instead we, we seek the immortality of the resurrection that has been promised to us who have been united to Christ. And so, church, it's not wrong to work for glory. But let us not contend with God for the glory that comes from man. Let us restfully work for the glory that comes from God. But in order for us to work for the glory of God and for the glory that comes from God, we have to first and continually rest in the work that God has already done. We have to rest in the work that God has already done. It's been told by shepherds in the the highlands of Scotland that sheep will sometimes wander off rocky cliffs in pursuit of green grass that they'll see on these dangerous ledges, right? So a sheep will come up to the cliff and there'll be like a little little ledge 10 feet below and the, the sheep will just go for it. Right? They'll just jump off the ledge, and, and they'll land on this ledge with no exit strategy or way to get off of this ledge they've found themselves on. And uh, a good shepherd will actually allow that sheep to remain there for days on end. He, he, won't, he won't swoop in for a rescue right away. He'll, he'll let the sheep remain there until it becomes so weak that it can't stand up. And then it lays down. And then he drops down, puts a rope around it, and lifts the sheep back up to safety. And other non-shepherds, upon seeing this, have asked the shepherds why they wait so long. Doesn't seem like they're being good shepherds. It seems sort of cruel to the sheep. But you see, the shepherds know that the sheep are so foolish that if they went to get them right away, they would dash right off the ledge and fall to their death. And so the shepherd waits until their strength is gone and they lay down. And then he goes and gets the sheep. Some of us are not good at laying down. And resting in the arms of our Savior, are we? Some of you have a lot of good work for the glory of God and the kingdom ahead of you. But he calls you first to lay down and rest in his work. Working for the glory and praise of people is, a, is an exhausting endeavor. Right? Selfish ambition will drain you and make you weary. But the good shepherd calls you to lay down. To rest in the work of Christ. To rest in the glory you will receive from God because you are in Christ. How glorious God is that he will humble us and he will make us so weary so that we will lie down in his green pastures. And what joy there is in being able to rest your salvation and your glory on God alone. 
Church, if we are judged by our works, we must first rest in the work of Christ. And may we start each and every day, may we start each and every endeavor, may we start each and every good work by first resting in what Christ has done. It is those who rest their salvation and glory on God alone that will not be shaken. Let's pray.